There are a million ways to die. Perhaps two million. Perhaps even more. In fact, we don't even know how many ways there are to die. But one thing we do know is that a high percentage of those who die have what is commonly known as a near-death experience. Many people report going up a tunnel and seeing heavenly bodies bathed in bright light. And a good number see their life flash before them in a life review and even enter a heavenly realm. We have many representations of near-death experiences all around us. Artists down through history and in every culture have been there to record these heavenly encounters. It's as though mankind takes a common path to heaven and always has. I know all about near-death experiences because I have written about them, nine books in all, with a number of the field's top researchers. I have looked at death in many ways and in many cultures. Yet, funny thing, in all the years I have studied and written about death, I have rarely thought that it would ever happen to me. Most of the time I thought that I would always be here, a permanent inhabitant of the living world. What was it Sigmund Freud said? When we attempt to imagine death, we perceive ourselves as spectators. Like most everyone else, I too imagine myself as a spectator. I hid behind my writing, safe from mortality. I had a box seat in the stadium of mankind, an eternal observer in the game of life. Then, reality paid me a visit. It was a beautiful day with spectacular light and clean air. It was, as they say, a good day to die. I was out taking a walk in the desert, when, out of nowhere, my heart began to race fast and hard like a runaway engine. Before long, I was down and out. In a lucid moment, I realized that I could easily become the subject of my own work. I imagined what that would be like by remembering stories used in the books I had written. No longer did I believe that the only thing wrong with immortality was that it goes on forever, or that it was a fate worse than death. I wanted real answers to the age-old question, what happens when we die? I decided to go to people who knew firsthand what happens, near-death experiencers. Accidents or illness had brought these people to the brink of death. They had looked down into the abyss and found it to be, well, quite pleasant actually. If not, why were they laughing all the time? I also went to researchers who had analyzed thousands of these near-death experiences and who had come up with some amazing conclusions about God, heaven, and the afterlife. These were guys I had written books with. Funny, isn't it? I always thought I was writing those books for other people, not myself. And then I talked to people all over the country and from all walks of life, just to see what the person on the street thought about death and the hereafter. Their answers were proof that I was not the only one thinking about the big question. I don't really believe in any kind of afterlife of any kind. I think, you know, when you die, you, you go back to wherever you were when before you were born, you know? I hope that you go to heaven. Um, I think that you do. I've never thought there was anything wrong with just at least believing that you go to heaven. It's not going to do you any harm, so I hope so. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that uh, we're spiritual beings that have existed before this time and exist beyond this time, and 
you know, this just happens to be um, where we're most aware of right now. I really, I really don't agree with the whole life after death thing because if that, if if it really was life after death, what's the point of even being alive? You know. I I think that there's some sort of afterlife. You go, your spirit goes somewhere. Um, honestly, I, I I don't know, really. In order to get a modern-day impression of this subject, it is best to spend time with the scientists who are studying this phenomenon now. Perhaps the best scientific work is being done by Dr. Jeffrey Long. We co-wrote the book *Evidence of the Afterlife*, which is filled with his astounding findings about death and the beyond. Yes, I did say beyond. As the founder of the Near Death Experience Research Foundation, also known as Enderf. Dr. Long has investigated thousands of near-death experience case studies worldwide. His conclusion: there is most definitely an afterlife. The question, that really important question of what happens when we die, you know, I certainly have my opinion, and I've not been shy about sharing that opinion. I think there is an afterlife for all of us, and I think that afterlife is wonderful. But I think what's even more important is why I believe that. What evidence is there? What is that line of thinking? What is that chain of evidence? What have we consistently observed in multiple studies, including the Enderf study, that leads me to believe that? And I think it's those nine lines of evidence that, to me, personally, are compelling evidence that we all are going to have an afterlife. That that is something that we are all going to experience. Our consciousness, who we are. Is going to survive our bodily death, and we're going to go on into an afterlife, which so many near-death experiencers have heard from, call it their real home. One of the most significant lines of evidence I have that near-death experiences prove the existence of an afterlife is the out-of-body observations that near-death experiencers make. Nearly half of people who have a near-death experience will have an out-of-body state. We'll call it an OBE. During that time, their consciousness rises up, and usually from an area above their body, they can observe both their own body, often frantic resuscitation efforts, and other earthly ongoing events going on. Again, at a time that they're often clinically dead. Part of my study was to look at 617 near-death experiences. We found 287 of those near-death experiences involved observations of earthly, everyday、uh, events at, at this time when they were unconscious or dead. And to my considerable surprise, we found that an unbelievable 97.6 percent of the time, every observation that they were making, everything that they shared in our survey, in their narrative form, was realistic. In other words, there was nothing that seemed unrealistic about their observations of earthly events to either the near-death experiencer or to myself personally, looking over their narrative. The number of people that described a near-death experience while they're undergoing general anesthetic. To understand how amazing that is, understand that when you have a cardiac arrest, you have no potential for a conscious experience. But also, when you're under general anesthesia, you're under a blanket of complete sleep. You have no potential to have any kind of memory, any kind of conscious awareness because of the general anesthesia. But put the two together, you, if you will. There's doubly no reason for you to have any memory or any conscious experience, and yet that is when these near-death experiencers describe their experience. 
We know that's true because they typically describe in the out-of-body state during their near-death experience with their consciousness above the body, they see, and some have described dramatically, their electrocardiogram, a measure of heart electrical activity, flatlining. There's the immediate frantic resuscitation efforts that they watch from their ringside seat above their body. And as time goes on, they go on and have a typical near-death experience. But in our study, we found 23 near-death experiencers that had their experiences while under general anesthesia. I compared 33 elements of the near-death experience to other NDEs, that being experiences not associated with general anesthesia. And the conclusion, the take-home lesson from my study was the two groups of near-death experiences are essentially identical. Absolutely amazing. Near-death experiences happen, and they are typical near-death experiences, even if they occur under general anesthesia. To me personally, I am astounded when I encounter near-death experiences that occur in the blind that involve vision, but especially near-death experiencers in those born blind. I've interviewed at length a near-death experiencer who was born blind, never had any visual perception during her entire life, and yet when she had a car accident at the age of 22, all of a sudden she had vision and described in great detail what her body looked like in the emergency room table below, went on to describe a typically highly visual experience. And again, there's absolutely no medical explanation for this possible. In my research, I found that a fully 96% of the time near-death experiencers described meeting familiar beings that they knew from their earthly life, that these beings were deceased at the time of the near-death experience. And actually what's interesting is the number of near-death experiences where they encountered somebody who seemed familiar but they didn't know who it was. And only when the near-death experiencer looked at old family portraits, all of a sudden they would go, aha, that's the individual from my near-death experience, say a great-grandfather, uh, a great-great-grandmother, people that they never even met in their life. And yet there, by studying old family portraits, later on after their experience, suddenly connect the dots and realize dramatically that that was who they encountered. We found in our study of near-death experiences not only from just around the world but even in very different cultures in non-western cultures the core element of near-death experience seems to be basically the same. Near-death experiences are far more similar than they are dissimilar. It's amazing to think you know whether you're a, uh, an Arab in Saudi Arabia or a Hindu in India or a Christian in the United States the core NDE experiments, what happens when you nearly die, that elements of the near-death experience all seem to be the same. This puts me out, if you will, a little bit on a limb. Here I am as a physician who's actually studied near-death experiences and making an amazing claim that the evidence is so strong that certainly to me it proves the existence of an afterlife. For thousands of years, the great religions have said, Take on faith that we have life after death. Take on faith that there's more than just what you see and, and live in our earthly existence, that you are more, that you are a magnificent being that lives on and on after you die. And you know the incredible thing is, for thousands of years, that message of faith, every shred of research I have is validated. In other words, it seems to be true that there really is life after death. If you want to find a concentration of NDEers, you might try going to one of their conventions. This one, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, 
is the largest of the associations. They get together every year for fellowship and lectures. And yes, to tell their stories. If you ever had doubt that heaven awaits you, a day at an IONS conference will erase that. The NDEers in the group, those who have actually died and lived to tell the tale, are so anxious to tell their story of death and rebirth that they wear a red dot on their name tags so they can be recognized. I nabbed the first four red dots I saw and asked them for interviews. What I heard made my jaw drop. First up was Martha St. Clair from Salem, Oregon. In 1974, she was water skiing on the Sacramento River when her arm got wrapped in the rope. She was dragged underwater and nearly drowned. I found myself going through a dark tunnel. It felt like I had been there before, and I had the sense that I was going home. There was gorgeous flowers and colors and colors that you don't see on Earth. It's like I had my body, but it wasn't a physical body. It was like kind of like a light body. I didn't really look at my body, but I sensed it was like a, a full of light. And I found myself in the universe, just stars and galaxies, and it felt completely normal, like I was home. Boom, I was just back in my body. There was no um, show, you know, no, please, can I come? It, it wasn't any agreement. Just boom, I'm back in my body. and. Um, I didn't really know what to do with my experience. Back then, uh, this was a year before any near-death experience books had come out. I had heard nothing about it. And when I told my family about it, even though they could see my arm was damaged, um, they were like, that didn't happen to you. It frightened them. They didn't want to hear about it. I really had no one to talk to about it. Now I have a counseling practice, and I comfort people with hospice. And the main thing about my near-death experience is that I've always felt my whole life much more connected to the other side, but I'm always tuned into heaven. I'm always tuned into that energy. I have no fear of death whatsoever. And I, um, I can't wait to go home again. Jesus said that in my house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. So I only tapped into a little, a small part of the huge universe, you know, but I believe there's different places, and that's why people go to so many different levels of consciousness. So how do you know you weren't just having this hallucinogenic um, high experience? However, in my hippie days, I've had some drug experiences, not extensive, but enough to know this was nothing like that. <laughs> and I've had acid. Never was crazy about it. Nothing like that. There's nothing that compares to this divine light that we see. And the thing is, is it happens to our soul. It happens to our soul. So I feel glad I can tell you that, glad I can share it with you, and I know it's true because I've had the other experiences too. Then there was Gary Guthrie, who had a near-death experience in 1982 in South Africa as the result of a blood infection. I became very sick, and I thought, well, this is just the flu or something. And... New Year's Eve came and I spent the night partying and went to bed about um, 3 a.m. and at 6 a.m. I woke up with tremendous, uh, the blood was really getting to my heart and was going awfully fast and um, it was at that moment where I felt that I was going to die. So I just prepared myself to die 
And it was that moment that I looked out of the window um, and I saw the sky opening and a light coming through. 20 minutes later, I was just in tears and this was not normal for me. And I realized that this had been something divine. Oh, the light, the light was unlike any light that you see here. It was unlike any light I've ever experienced before. It was very loving and very healing and uh, it embraced you in its warmth and its love. And um, it's nothing I had ever experienced before that or since. I was 30 at the time. I was teaching school, um, teaching overseas. I was working in the Philippines and living a very Hugh Hefner kind of life. But the near-death experience changed all that. I began to think more deeply about, well, why am I here and what is life all about? And where do we go after, after this life? For about a week after my near-death experience, I had sort of a vision uh, as I was going about my daily activities of what life could be like in South Africa. I felt that people did have a love for each other and that they showed kindness towards each other and that there was uh, a united feeling among each other, um, which on the surface wasn't true, but I could see it as sort of what the future is going to be like in South Africa. The light speaks to people in different ways. Um, it, it's all intelligence, it's all knowing, so it knows the individual and uh, it speaks to the individual according to their individual needs and their, their, their awareness um, and their readiness to, to accept uh, a higher life. Barbara Bartolomeo of Santa Barbara, California, had a near-death experience as the result of an injection of dye during a pre-surgical myelogram. She left her body and saw vivid details of the panicked events to revive her. The last thing I saw before I passed out was him checking to where his finger was on the button and then realizing, oh my God, I've got my finger on the wrong button and I've lowered her head and this look came across his face. And then I passed out, and I, the minute that I passed out, um, it literally was shutting my eyes in my body that was there on the x-ray table, and then opening them and being a different perspective up on the ceiling. The thought that ran through my head was, wow, if they're all so upset, and I'm up here, and my body's down there, then I've died. I saw them bring in an oxygen cart and they put the oxygen mask on my face and I saw who did that and everything was going on. I saw them bring in an, a um, heart monitor but I didn't know what it was. And as I was looking down and watching all this happening and talking to God who I sensed was right there with me, I wanted to see what that box was that they had brought in. And so I actually was able to go from the ceiling over right in front of the, my, my viewpoint changed to where I was right in front of the box and I was watching the line going across the box and it was just making this, you know, monotone beeping sound and it was just going beep. At about four minutes into that, 
they, they, they decided that they couldn't, somehow they couldn't get the defib unit in there in time. And they had a conversation and the conversation was, why don't you try hitting her chest? And everybody kind of sep separated away from the from front of the table and he arced his arm over his head and it came down and pounded on the center of my chest. So I watched that from up above. And the second time he did that and arced his arm over his head, then my vision just shut from up above. And when I blinked open my eyes, I had the oxygen mask on my face and I was looking up into everybody's faces. I had this euphoria feeling, this absolute thrill to be back in my body and feeling so grateful that I was back. And um, I wanted to express that. So the minute they took the oxygen mask off, I said, oh my God, that was an incredible experience. I was up on the ceiling. I watched you all and I could see, you know, everything that was going on and hear you. She put the oxygen mask on me. He wheeled in that uh, heart monitor and I started pointing out people and what they had done while I was dead. And um, you guys were talking and you said this to him and he said that to you. The orthopedic surgeon stayed and comforted me and I told them what had happened. So everybody listened, but then as I went through, you know, was wheeled up to my room after I was stabilized and this was the night before the surgery, they did the surgery the next day, no one, no one would talk to me about it because they knew that they had made an error in what happened caused me to die and they were afraid of a lawsuit. And I didn't talk about it for about 10 years, but finally a friend of mine was having um, someone near to her die and so it just, it bubbled up out of me and I realized it was my reality all these years and I knew the story but I needed to talk to other people to kind of help them because it totally eliminated my fear of death. I don't really want to be hurt before I die, I want to be able to have it be easy, but the actual experience t takes away all fear that you have of passing over. And then there's Jenny Summers, a graphic artist with IBM in Tucson, Arizona. As a young woman, Jenny went to summer camp with a number of her friends. To play a joke on the camp counselors, Jenny ran into a building that was under construction and fell 15 feet down a hole designed for a staircase. It took rescuers almost an hour to reach her comatose body. By the time they did, she was in the midst of a deep, near-death experience. And evidently, I guess I had died because they were talking as if I couldn't hear them. And I started to float up out of, the, out of my body and I was encased in this love. It was just wonderful. And I said, does everyone get to experience this? It's just marvelous. And the answer was yes. And I said, even Hitler? And yes. And I knew it had to be true because of that love is so inclusive. It's so beyond anything in this world. The next thing I know, I'm in front of three moving kind of sh sh blobby shapes. And one of them is my great-grandma great Julia. And she's telling me I need to go back. And they're saying, you have to go back. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to go back. So next thing I know, I'm with, I'm with Jesus. And I kind of feel like I'm in the principal's office. And he's now telling me, you don't have to go back if you don't want to. I'm like, finally, somebody's listening to me. I, I took back some of my future events that the family, my family was going to go through. And so when I wake up from the coma, I see my mom. I say, Mom, Mom, you're going to die in two years. Not knowing I was in a coma, not knowing I, I oh, 
they said I had a 50-50 chance of survival now, and so, um, so I didn't know the hell that she had been through. Well, she told me that every time I would wake up from you know, recovery and, and tell the story again, I was forgetting more and more. So now we're out of the hospital, we're back home, and she has a Raymond Moody book in her hand. And she said, tell me again about me dying in two years. And I said, what? And she's like, and I could see she was serious. I said, wait, why are you asking me that? And she said, you told me that in the hospital, I was gonna die in two years. Said, no, I didn't. And, and I couldn't believe she was telling me. She closed the Raymond Moody book. She said she never wanted to talk about it again. Go fast forward two years later, my mom dies. She's in a car wreck with my sister. My sister's the driver, but they got hit head on. And Teresa survives, and, but my mom doesn't. It's about reconnecting to who we really are. It's a universal mind that we reconnect to. It's kind of like here, we're unplugged from our source, and we try to take our plug and plug it into each other and, and things. We, you know, this, this person's gonna make me happy, this car's gonna make me happy, and we keep trying to draw our energy from people, things, this dimension, and every time we take that plug and we connect it back to our source, then we become full, and then we become connected. And so now I realize I don't need these outside things but I can be that light and memory, that energy that reminds people to not plug into each other, but to plug into to God. Before leaving California, I wanted to see my friend Leslie Gant, one of the hosts from the MSN program Live Earth. Leslie was hit by a car in Washington, D.C. and nearly killed, an event that she reflected on when we got together near her home in Santa Monica. A, a few years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was riding my bicycle home, and a van hit me, mm -hmm. and I flew 18 feet and shattered my jaw. My cheekbone was Ouch. broken, and uh, I had on my helmet, so... Thank goodness yeah. I'm alive for that. Um, but if I didn't have on my helmet, I, I would not be here. And I've mm -hmm. thought a lot afterward, oh my gosh, where would I have gone? And do other people think about that? Like, do other people consider what yeah. happens after this life sure. is over? Mm -hmm. Good question. Does the man on the street think about the afterlife? We decided to find out by visiting Santa Monica's Third Street Promenade to ask people we met, what happens when we die? What are your perspectives on life after death? Oh, there's a great life after death. You're just here for a while and it's better life after death. Better land above. Have you had any experiences with that? Yeah, I did. When I was a kid, I had a near-death experience. I had my tonsils being taken out and I can remember I was in and I just remember it was a light tunnel. And the tunnel it takes you right up there and all the way in. It's just this beautiful land and everything's pretty and it was just perfect. And all of a sudden it just came back. I don't have any like specific thoughts about it, but I think that it's gotta kinda has to be something because everything here can't let, it can't just be as it is. It has to have something more. I fully believe that there is something after we die, but it's up to us if we want to cross over. Me, I, uh, I think nothing happens. I think, you know, that's the cycle of life. You know, people die and it, it's over with. I don't think there's any mysterical ascension or anything of that sort. 
I guess I won't be seeing him in heaven. That's where I'm going. So, yeah, that's what I think happens. You do go to heaven or, or hell, just depending on, um, I guess, what you did through life. So I guess I subscribe to the Christian point of view. <laughs> I think about the finality of it, and I think about that. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> well, I think uh, when people die, it's just like candle is blown out. People die, people die, and the spirit cannot exist without a body. That's my thought. Uh, I guess you know either you go to heaven or hell. What you believe in, on, what you do here on earth is what's going to happen to you after you die. You bad. If you're good, you go go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. I guess. I think I know for a fact. Yes. Me personally, my grandmother. She said she had died when she had my father. I'm sorry. When she had my father, so she told me about the tunnel, but I didn't believe her, and I almost died. Almost drowned when I was like seven years old. So. I saw the tunnel, but I woke up. Swear to God. So you just saw the tunnel? Yeah. I yeah. just never made it. Ah. Just woke up. Wow. Did your life flash before your eyes? Definitely. But I was small. I was seven years old, bro. Oh, you were seven? Right? Seven years old. And it's just this endless thing, just like hearing right now, like hearing this interview and different stages. And, you know, it's like the play is always different. It's always a different script. It's always a different movie. But it's the same soul always going through. So that's what I believe. <laughs>
that there's no such thing as physicality as we experience in it in this realm. It's not that they have a physical body. It's rather that they have some other sort of vehicle which they find it very difficult to describe. But that it does have a form, that it carries a personality, but that it's just entirely impossible to describe it within, in turn, terms of or analogously to the kind of body that we have. I've heard it characterized as a spiritual body, for example. That's a term that I hear from a lot of people. So when they come back, mm -hmm. they're changed, mm -hmm. they're transformed. There are a number of transformations we see with people who come back from near-death experiences. The most prominent one is that whatever they had been chasing before, whether knowledge or fame or power or money or any of these other things, that when they come back they say that the most important thing we can do while we're alive is to learn how to love. How has this knowledge affected your life? The most powerful one to me has been that it really has convinced me of the importance of love. And I try in every day to be loving to people. I genuinely do try in my day-to-day -day interactions with people that I try to keep in mind that I will be seeing this again and that I will be seeing this event not from the way I'm seeing it now through these eyes, but that I will be seeing this event through the eyes of the people with whom I've interacted. How do you think the world would change if you were able to prove that there was an afterlife? Many people get to thinking about this and they think, oh, if that were the case, then we'd all love each other and there would be nirvana and there wouldn't be any problems in the world. But I don't think it would be, be, uh, bring people to a state of you know, complete love and make everybody saints and so on. I honestly don't accept that. But there is one thing that I am absolutely sure that a rational proof of life after de death would do. And that would be that it would fundamentally alter the structure of the human mind. If we could have a rational proof of life after death, then human beings would never again be the same because the entire structure of our cognitive mind would be expanded. What I can honestly tell you from the bottom of my heart is that I accept that there is a God and I have a relationship with God and I talk with Him all the time. What I honestly don't know yet from the rational point of view is whether life after death is in his plan or not. And it may well be, if you think about it, that God has something in, in mind for us that is even more remarkable than what we might call a life after death. In other words, I, I love God, I have a trusting relationship with God. He hasn't told me anything yet about an afterlife. I just, I'm just going to have to wait and see. The next day, I went back to Dr. Moody's to talk to him about his next field of study, shared death experiences. He feels this subject may provide the best answer yet to the question, what happens when we die? Simply stated, shared death experiences take place when bystanders at the deathbed have the same experience as the person who is dying. Sometimes they say that they went up a tunnel or had a life review with the dying person. 
Now the implication of this, if you think about it, is that this really does throw a monkey wrench in the traditional way of debating about near-death experiences. Right. Because what the uh, physiologists tell us who, who, who say that these experiences are hallucinatory is that as the person is dying, uh, the oxygen supply to their brain is lowered and hence they um, have these hallucinatory effects. But if that's true, why would the bystanders have the same kind of experience? Sure, well, that's, why would they? That's very difficult to explain. Yeah. And um, I think that once these findings come out and are thoroughly understood by the public, we're going to be into an entirely new dimension of discussing near-death experiences because that old standby uh, that, oh, this is just hallucinations caused by brain damage, that's out the window uh, with these empathic death experiences. Now, if you don't mind me saying this, you and your family had a shared death experience at the bedside of your mother. I did indeed. In 1994, uh, when my mother was dying, my wife and I and my sisters and one of my brother-in-laws were there um, and uh, all had astonishing experiences at the moment my, my mother died. I think it's one uh, of the most exciting fields to study. Oh and, yes, and, Paul. And the, the study of afterlife studies, I think this is one of the most exciting Paul, this is the new frontier of knowledge because now we have not only this awareness that uh, these near-death experiences are not confined to the people who almost die, but kind of leak out by whatever right. unknown means to the people standing around. Yeah. and. It is a very paradoxical and astonishing thing to, to wonder what is going on here. Men love to wonder, said Ralph Waldo Emerson, and that is the seed of science. I am reminded of that quote whenever I am with Raymond Moody. For half of his life and counting, the good doctor has pursued the big question of religion, science, and philosophy. What happens when we die? But there are people out there, millions of them, of all races, creeds, colors, and religion, who don't need a scientific answer. They know from experience. I traveled to the Pacific Northwest to visit Galen Dean Lovin. At the age of 11, Galen took it upon himself to prove to a neighbor that gasoline burns on water. He filled a five-gallon gas can from the family farm's gas tank and went down to a nearby creek to make his point. I'm standing on these two logs, pouring the gasoline upstream. Yeah. So the water's flowing down underneath me, or the gasoline is flowing underneath me. And I look over and there's my friend approaching the creek with a lit match. And the look on his face was, I would say, horror. It was, he was doing something he didn't really mean to do, but couldn't not do. In a hot second, Galen was covered by gasoline and engulfed in flames. The pain was so intense that young Galen could feel nothing. He collapsed into the water, where his voyage to the other side began. 
My next awareness is I'm horizontal with my hands by my side and in a funnel. It's not really a tunnel, but it's a funnel. And the, the inclination of the sides was not that great, but it was obvious. And I was horizontal, dead center, and I was moving along. And I, could, I was aware of my body. You know, my whole body was there. I could look and see, and, and uh, I was, it was physical. Okay, it was very physical. And the inside the cone was, it wasn't a vacuum, and, but it wasn't anything in particular other than something. I knew outside of this uh, funnel there was more substance. It felt more solid on the outside of the funnel. I'm moving along a bit and then look ahead and I see this little tiny pinpoint of light, a little white light. And at that point my speed really picks up. So I'm accelerating like crazy. It's not that I reach a fast speed and stay at that speed, but every millisecond I'm moving faster and faster and faster and faster. As I'm doing that, the sides of the funnel are expanding away from me. I'm still dead center. I'm still physical. I'm still able to look around. And this feeling of excitement, this feeling of anticipation, this feeling of, of joy was just overcoming me. It was almost bursting out of my chest. It felt so good. And just at that point when I'm almost there, I mean, this light is big. The sides of the funnel are pretty much gone. And I'm, and I'm almost in the light, right? Wow. I wake up in the bottom of the stream, and I am just furious. That was my first instant reaction, even before I really was aware that I had slime in my mouth and everything else, was I was just pissed that I was here. Galen raised out of the water and began to assess the damage to his burn-ravaged body. Sheets of skin hung from his arms, exposing bone and muscle. From a vantage point outside of his body, he watched as he ran to the farmhouse to get help. Rushed to the hospital in Edmonton, Canada, Galen was lucky to find that two burn surgeons from Houston were visiting to give a seminar on the latest treatment of petroleum burns. Within minutes, Galen was in surgery. You know, I look like a toasted marshmallow. Any war pictures you see in Napalm victims or wherever, they have no discernible features, right? They're just a bloated mass. That's what I looked like. I had no mouth, no ears. Uh, no eyes, I couldn't see. Uh, the, the EIV was hooked up into my foot because that's the only place they could find any place to put it. And I was on a morphine trip for the next four weeks. Through months in the hospital and years of pain and surgery, Galen continued to think about his journey in the tunnel and his near encounter with the light. Death revealed its nature to Galen and gave him special knowledge. Listen. I would say that's the first time I became consciously aware that we live beyond this, this life, okay? I absolutely knew that. So from that point on, death had nothing, no hold over me at all. I was fearless and probably pushed the envelope more than once, right? But I also found out I became really good with people who were dying. I could just be around them. I didn't have to do anything at all. They just felt better. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? It's probably because I never really came back. You know, my trip was interrupted. And I always thought, up until recently, I always had one foot on the other side, right? Straddling the fence of life. And so what I absolutely am certain of is that whatever it is that we do after this moment of time, it is, it is a good thing. I mean, it's, it's peaceful, it's joyous, it's harmonious, it's exciting, uh, it's... Uh, 
a higher level of intellectual being, if you want to call it that. And there's a connectivity there to this larger universe than, than we have here now. Galen says he isn't waiting for science to make a decision for him. He believes in the afterlife and has no fear of dying when his contract is up. <laughs> the same is true of Lupita Kirkland. At the age of 13, Lupita and her family traveled to Acapulco for her coming out party. When Lupita and her family checked into the hotel, they were treated to a concert just below their eighth floor balcony. One of Lupita's sisters recommended that they run to the lobby and watch. Lupita did just that. But unbeknownst to her, someone had closed the sliding glass door going back into the room. Lupita ran through the door, which shattered into sharp shards and covered her with a thousand cuts. I saw a lot of blood, um, like, like somebody pouring a uh, full host, you know, full of blood all over the place. And so my dad grabbed me and, and he put me in the bed and he wrapped a blouse to compress on my wound. And so he asked me to, um, because I have wounds all over my veins, he asked me just to hold them so I could cover the wounds here in my arms. And um, I realized that I was gonna die. So I told my dad that I'm going to die today. So I saw my body in the distance and I was like in the room and I had the vision of my mom getting the doctor and she was screaming and crying and I felt sorry for her. I wanted to console her and let her know that I was okay. Even though I was afraid at the first moment when I was detached from my body, um, an overwhelming sense of peace came all over me and I knew I was okay, that I was going back home and I wanted to share that with my parents, that I was okay, but I couldn't talk to them anymore. And I saw my dead body just laying there and um, the doctor came and I remember him saying, oh my God, she's not gonna make it. I saw the tunnel. It seemed to be made of dark clouds. At the end of the tunnel, there was a, a light. At the end of that light, I saw the image of uh, what I believe is Virgin Mary. And um, I was reviewing my life with her and we spoke about my mission in life. And after that, we had spoken about me coming back because I realized that my mission was not complete and that I needed to, to go back. So finally, I was pulled back, like with this uh, uh, reaction, you know? And I, and I felt how my, soul enter into my body like it was strong and and I was feeling how the doctor was performing the CPR and I remember huge the huge pain in my chest and um, 
and all the pain, the physical pain came back to my body after I came back. And I was trying to get all the air I could into my lungs. Like I could not have enough air. And the doctor saying, she made it, she's back, she's back, let's start stitching. The doctor had no anesthesia, so young Lupita was forced to suffer through the painful but necessary ordeal of being sutured with no painkiller. He had to stitch four layers in my neck, and he started with the aorta, and it was a very painful experience in which I was literally screaming and thinking. It was a mix of feelings between not wanting this pain again, like sad for having to come back, but at the same time I was mesmerized by the whole experience. After I started to talk about my experience, I told my parents that I knew the doctor met my mom by the third floor. And my mom was like in shock, like, who told you this? And I said, I saw it. And she said, no, somebody told you, no, I saw it. So they could not believe what was happening. So I said, I need to go back and thank him for what he did. So we went back to Acapulco a year later. We went to the address, and particularly, but particularly in that address, there was no house. Everything was like uh, an empty lot, and there were houses around. So we started to look around for him and ask for his name, Jesus or Jesus. I never found him. How has this affected your life? in the intervening years? I didn't come, I didn't come back the same. I was a different person. I was more spiritual and also I became a more compassionate person, uh, concerned for others and feeling a, a sense of love. You're not gonna die. This is just a transition you're gonna see and you're gonna meet home and you'll be fine. Take all the love that you have gotten here in this world and just remember those beautiful moments and take them with you and share them with God. has been called many things, from an ingrown, self-obsessed little city to a place that can drive a sober-minded person insane. The religious and the profane love this noisy, drunken city on the Mississippi because it confirms their mutual belief that the likes of Sodom is alive and well in the world. And both camps can definitely agree that this American city made it through a near-death experience at the hands of a hurricane named Katrina. And it is here, in this city of death and resurrection, that I brought together our scholars of the afterlife, Raymond Moody and Jeffrey Long, 
who summarized their feelings on mankind's greatest question, what happens when we die? Brought you here to New Orleans to talk about the afterlife, namely what happens when we die. What does your research tell us about that? And also what you can talk to people about who, who are afraid of death. Mm. What you can say to them, because you're both the experts. Well, Paul, I can say positively that I think we do know a little bit about the entrance way to the afterlife now. We know that uh, initially people go through experience of seeming to leave their body, going into a realm of light, seeing their relatives who've passed away, reviewing everything they've ever done. And as this extends, I gather, they are able to continue their intellectual pursuits and also that love seems to be almost the foundational organizational principle in, in the afterlife, that we still maintain love and that we still have our personal identities to some degree intact. Absolutely fantastic, the research we're doing. Um, certainly in humility I would point out that what we don't know far exceeds what we do know and yet what I consider to be so positive about the research I've been doing is that we're now at least connecting some of the dots, developing some understandings, and some of the understandings that we're coming to are absolutely remarkable. I think they could literally change the world in terms of their impact on people. If people could just know what we know, that we don't really die, that there is an afterlife, it's for all of us, it's wonderful, and that we don't have to fear death. But yes, you guys, and, you and guys that we have taken the research so far. I mean, I'm curious to know what you can say to people who fear death. We have every right to say to people that you don't need to fear death. This, this gives a great basis from which to work with patients on their fears of death because this is solid information now that does convey hope and that people who've lost a loved one to death, which is the worst pain that, that life can bring, um, can be comforted now by the fact, as I regard it, that there is a world beyond in which we can be reunited and continuing our relationship with our loved ones. And Paul, I think in the books that we've all written together, what I think is most important is that this is not wishful thinking, this is not speculation, this is solid evidence based on solid principles, research with scientific basis. And it's with that underpinning, with that knowledge that we've gained through our research over the years, that we can have that confidence in saying, yes, there is an afterlife. And there it is. Maybe the void we all fear at death isn't a void at all, but instead a gateway to an afterlife. Perhaps our death is, as Dr. Moody said, an experience of love and learning so unique that we can't perceive it without the help of God. Perhaps at death, our life has just begun. What do you think happens when we die? I think when we die that we go on to another lifetime. And I think that whatever happens in that lifetime absolutely has to do with karma from your previous life. And whatever you give in your life today, I think you're going to wind up with whatever you gave in the previous life, in the next life. Um, I think your soul, like when you die, your soul just basically goes to heaven or hell. It depends on how you live your life. Um, that determines, like, basically where you go. So hopefully mine will go to heaven. 
What do you think happens when you die? Okay. Go for it. I I don't think anything happens after you die. You just die? You just die. Soul goes nowhere? No. What do you think happens when you die? Having a hell, but I'm going to heaven. Yeah. One day I'm going to get on track when my beliefs actually line up to what I'm doing, but that's just my beliefs. What do you think happens when you die? Your body goes to the ground, your soul goes to heaven. That's your other life. It's called the land of milk and honey. Jesus promised, whosoever believes in me shall sit at my right side, my right side of my father. That's in the Bible. I think when you die, you're happy. That's what I think.